Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love them to go out our side door here and join our Vine Kids time. If you have middle school, 5th, 6th, 7th, Mr. Jeff is standing back there, and he would love to have you be a part of what is happening over there. Fantastic. So once again, those of you that are with us for the very first time, we want to tell you welcome. We are honored and glad that you are here. We are blessed that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Uh, we believe it's an exciting time to be part of this little community, and we are honored that you, were, you will be here. Hopefully people were nice to you um, and that you meet and have an encounter with Jesus. Like That's the best that we have to offer. So um, that's it. Um, that being said, we are actually in this journey of the book of John. We started it last January. We're now 37 weeks in, and we're doing a sort of a verse-by-verse expository look of this gospel, which is wholly different than the other gospels. John is committed to making sure that we understand Jesus as God, that he is divine. And he is committed to the fact that he wants us to see the divine nature of Jesus in every miracle and every story and everything. So his goal as a gospel writer is very different than the others, right? He's not telling a history. For the past five weeks, except for the little break we took in there, for the past five weeks we've been looking at John chapter 8. And I've mentioned each week that the tide is turning, things have shifted in his gospel. But we spent all of chapter 8 really looking at the sort of contentious nature that is beginning to unfold between the Pharisees and Jewish influencers and Jesus. And it all sort of began when they brought this woman that had been caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. Remember that story? We talked about it quite a while ago. Their hope was that they could catch Jesus in a predicament between Roman and Jewish law. And when they did, they would have reason to arrest him. But Jesus turned the tables a little bit on them. And it just led to a sort of a, a hatred-fueled anger that was going to burn through the entire chapter. And John is going to show us time and time again how the Pharisees and Jewish influencers tried to capture, arrest, and or kill Jesus. And he just simply slipped away because it wasn't yet his time. And last week, we saw this all come to a kind of a culmination where the anger was so infuriating, burning in their hearts, that they reached down to grab stones and try and kill Jesus because of the divine claims that he was making. And Jesus made this single divine claim last week that we talked about that just threw the Pharisees over the edge, right? They said, do you think that you are better than Abraham? Was their accusation of Jesus, right? That you are somehow better than our father Abraham. And Jesus' response, if you were here last week, was, before Abraham was born, I am. And we talked about that statement, the I am statement that's wrapped up in Jesus' words. It's captured from Exodus chapter 3, where God essentially tells Moses to tell the people, right? He says, when you go to free my people who are in captivity, you tell them that the great I am sent you. And so Jesus, by claiming to be the I am, before, Mo, or before Abraham was born, I am, he is essentially claiming to be God. And all the Pharisees, they knew it. In fact, it incensed them so much they picked up stones where they were to throw them at Jesus. He was claiming at that moment to be God, which he had done multiple times. But this one had thrown them over the edge. And so they grab these rocks and they go to throw them right at Jesus where he stood to kill them. And once again, he somehow miraculously ninja through the crowd and was gone because it wasn't yet his time. 
And so we're going to pick up in chapter 9. Jesus has somehow made it outside the city of Jerusalem, and now he's on these little roads that lead up to the city, and he's going to encounter this man that was born blind. And we're actually going to be looking at this encounter for another three weeks because these are just so cool and powerful. It takes a little while to get through them. Um, We're going to look at it for two weeks. We're going to take a little break for Advent and talk about the really cool things that Jesus has called in Scripture, like Emmanuel and Prince of Peace and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we'll pick back up as we pass Christmas at the end of this chapter 9. But we're going to start it um, today with this encounter. And like most things that happen in Scripture, almost all things that happen in Scripture, there's much more going on behind the scenes than what we first see. And so we're going to look at the nature of this miracle, this moment that Jesus has with this blind man, and we're going to explore it for what it is. So let's take a moment, pull your Bible out to uh, John chapter 9, and we will pray, and then we will just sort of dive in and see what happens. So let's pray together. God, we are so deeply grateful that your word is living and active, that it is not just stories on a page, that it is your very breath, that is the breath of God, it is the theopunestos, it is the, the, the breath that God has breathed into these pages that are alive, and that having an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take it lightly, it's not some guidebook for our life, it is your very truth spoken to us. And so God, when we encounter it, we encounter you. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask that you would teach our hearts, that you would infect them with your grace, that you would convict and empower and heal and strengthen and encourage, that you would do all of those things in us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. However you need to whisper that, just say it to the Lord. Lord, teach my heart. Take a moment and pray for someone uh, around you or behind you, even if you don't know their name. We do this every week. We want to be a community that is in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here this morning is not about you. So pray that God would move in the person next to you, even if you've never, you've never met them or don't know their name. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would take your word and you would move in our lives. That, God, you would strengthen, convict, and encourage and teach our rebellious hearts. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. So we've moved out past chapter 9 where the Pharisees and Jewish influencers are just full of rage and hatred. Jesus has thrown gasoline on that hatred fire by directly claiming to be the I am God, which is a death sentence. It's blasphemy. He has claimed what will ultimately cost him his life. And John is showing us that we are leading closer and closer and closer to the cross. So they try and kill him. They pick up rocks to stone him, but they can't. He slips out. It's not his time yet. And we're going to pick up in chapter 9 as Jesus makes his way back outside the city. So let's look at 9 and we'll go all the way down through 12. As he went along, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, 
made some mud with the saliva and put it on this man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, No, no, he only looks like that man. But he himself said, No, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They demanded. He said, The man they called Jesus made some mud, and he put it on my eyes, and he told me to wash, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. I love this story. I love this story because it has such great echoes of my favorite Jesus miracle healing in John, or in Mark chapter 7, where he heals the guy that was deaf by taking his fingers and, and putting them in his ears. It's my favorite encounter. And I love this one because it has so many echoes of that same story. It's deeply, deeply personal, right? But it's an incredible encounter. Jesus had slipped outside of town. They are trying to kill him. And not just like, oh, we're going to arrest you and, you know, put you on trial. They're trying to pick up rocks and smash his head in. And Jesus slips outside of town. He doesn't disappear. He's on the roads that kind of lead up into Jerusalem. And he's outside of town, and he encounters this blind man, this beggar, right? And we've talked about this scenario before. Those people that had ailments or a handicap or were seen as cultural, as marginalized, they didn't have opportunities to work. They were usually carried by a friend or a neighbor or relative or led by a friend or neighbor or relative to sit on the side of the road or by the city gate or the gate that went into the temple or any of those places and just beg. It was their existence. And so here's this gentleman who's out on the side of the road and he's sitting there, a blind guy, without an opportunity to make money and he's a beggar and everybody knows him as a beggar. In fact, we see later on in that little text that we just read that they say, isn't this the guy that we know from basically begging? Now was his existence. He's sitting on the side of the road and Jesus and the disciples are walking by. And the disciples have a question. It's actually a legitimate question if you understand it. And they say, Rabbi or teacher... Right? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? Now, in order to understand that question, you have to understand the, the, the sort of connection that people had between sin, handicap, and handicap and sin, generational sin, and God's punishment. There was a deep belief at that time that if you had an ailment, a handicap, some kind of physical condition, it was because you had sinned or your parents had sinned and God was punishing you. Now, this isn't that far-fetched if you read Scripture in the way that God corrected Israel. As they drifted and wandered, God oftentimes used the physical things not only in their lives, but around them to correct their course of action. And so people believed that if something happened to you, like blindness from birth, God was punishing you because you were a sin, sinner or you were in the generational sin of your parents. And so they basically ask Jesus that question. They go, here's this guy who's been blind from birth, right? So out of curiosity, who sinned? Him who's sitting here or his parents? Like, we just were curious and want to know why God is punishing this man or hates this guy, essentially. Well, Jesus kind of ignores those two options and presents a third option, right? And his third option is, Neither his parents nor he has sinned. And Jesus isn't implying that they're not sinners. He's just implying that this man's condition isn't a direct result of that sin. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this has happened so that God's glory may be displayed. 
which is a really interesting, and we'll get to that in a second, but a really interesting turn. This man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. He's not blind because of that. He's blind so that God couldn't be glorified in this moment. And then he goes on and says, as long as it's a day, we have to do the will of my Father, the one who sent me, right? For as long as I'm in this world, I am the light of the world. And he says that to the disciples, a teaching moment for them. And then he stoops or kneels or sits down with this guy, right, who would, be, who would be on some kind of blanket or straw mat. And Jesus sits down with him or kneels down or stoops down right in his space. And it says that he spits on the ground, right? Spits on the ground and he makes mud in the dirt. And wipes it across this guy's eyelids, this guy's eyelids and his eyes. And then he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is just a, it was basically a rock pool that was cut out on the southern edge of Jerusalem. It was a part of an intricate waterway system that was developed under King Hezekiah. It was just most likely the closest and largest pool. It says, go wash your eyes in that pool. It says that God did exactly that. He went and he washed and he could see and he came home seeing. And when he gets home, his neighbors and those that knew him as the guy that formerly begged, right? They said, is this the same guy? He comes home, but now he can see. There's no explanation for it. And the people that lived around him and the ones that known him as the, know him as the guy that formerly begged, like, we don't even know his name, right? Brandon, we call him Carl. Because Carl's the guy that always does everything in Scripture for Brandon. So Carl, we don't know his name. Isn't this him? Right? They don't even know his name. And some said, yeah, that's him. And some said, no, 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 that's not him. And then Carl, the guy, says, no, it's me. It really is me. It really is me. And they go, how do we know it's you? And he was like, because now I can see it. I was blind. They said, how are your eyes open? And he tells them the whole story in incredible detail. He says, this guy, Jesus, he came, he spit, he made mud, touched my eyes, told me to wash, I washed, I could see. And they said, where is he? He's like, I don't know. I mean, I love this guy's sort of demeanor. He's not overjoyed. He's not crazy. He's just, you ask a question, and I will tell you. And he's going to tell the same story to the Pharisees two more times. This guy, Jesus, came. He spit on the ground. He made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to wash. I washed. I could see. Where is he? I don't know. But in that moment, we see something incredible happen. And if you think that this miracle is just about Jesus giving sight to the blind, you've got to read Scripture. Right, Because there's so much more going on here that is so deeply important that we understand and see the nature of the way that God moves and works within the context of humanity. It is incredibly powerful. And remember what John is always doing. John is always interested in showing us the deity of Christ. John never is interested in telling a miracle for the sake of a miracle. The miracles always are there to show us that Jesus is in fact God. So John isn't just telling cool stories. He's telling divine cool stories. And I want you to see a few things about the nature of this miracle that really move in me and kind of define the nature not only of the miracle but the nature of Christ himself because this is not just a miracle moment. This is one of those profound, amazing things that happens in Scripture that changes how you and I should see and understand the person of Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see about the nature of this miracle is that it is deeply personal. Now, you've got to understand and really put yourself in the scenario of where this guy is coming from to understand the, the, the sort of personal nature of this encounter. Now, imagine having going through your entire life, believing 
because people told you and most likely you've been told many, many, many times over that you are blind because God hates you. And maybe he doesn't hate you directly, but he hated your parents because they were sinners. The attachment there is you are blind because the God of the universe is displeased with you. And it was a very common belief and understanding. And this guy would have been told that many, many times. In fact, it's so commonplace that the disciples even ask Jesus, who sinned, right? Why is God punishing this man? Was it because he was such a bad guy or were his parents really bad people? So this entire life, his entire life, he has gone through his life believing that the God of the universe, Yahweh, the great I am, was so disappointed in him or his family that he struck him blind from birth that that is just your plight, that God is angry with you. And your life is now relegated to being guided out day in and day out and waiting and sitting and begging, and that is who you are because the God of the universe is mad. So Jesus comes along the road with his disciples, right? And the disciples ask the question that this guy has probably wondered his entire life. Whose fault is this? That's the question they ask. Whose fault? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? Somebody's fault that God has done this to this man. Probably a question that's raged through his soul dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of times. Like, why am I like this? Why do I have this ailment, this thing? Why am I blind? And Jesus, while addressing his disciples, does something incredibly personal with this gentleman. He says to them, right, you remember, well, neither his parents, him or his parents have sinned. This was done so that God's glory may be fully displayed. And you've got to think about the nature of that comment for just a moment to realize how personal it is. All of your life you've been told that you are the result of God's anger or disappointment or frustration or hatred or you are a failure or your parents were failures and therefore you are stuck with this. And then the man they called Jesus, who everybody had been talking about, right? It's not like this guy had not heard. The entire city was alive with the movement of Christ. This guy they called Jesus just told you that not only does God not hate you, not only is God not disappointed with you, but if God is actually going to use the thing that you thought was your worst to glorify himself. Essentially what Jesus is telling this man in that moment is that God loves you. He's saying that your ailment, your blindness, your thing that the world has told you was going to define you as a sinful person, right, is not that. It's actually going to be the greatest display of God's glory that you could ever imagine. You didn't do anything. Your parents didn't do anything. This is so that God may be glorified in you. Now, at that moment, who knows what happens? Who knows how that gentleman felt? But I can tell you it's a deeply personal comment to have somebody tell you that everything in your life that God was setting up essentially for his disappointment is now going to be used for his glory. That he turned the tables of your entire heart in one moment and say, maybe God doesn't hate me, but God actually loves me and is going to use my blindness for his glory. And he doesn't understand what that means. Jesus hadn't said he's going to heal him yet or anything. He just knows that he was told that God is actually going to be glorified and what the world told him was his biggest problem. Which is how the beautiful personal nature of Christ works, right? That our greatest failures and sins and struggles in all things that we hate and that we know are wrong, that God can redeem them and use them for his incredible glory. 
that nothing is outside of God's redemptive movement. And so here's this guy who has been told his whole life that God is disappointed in him or hates him or is angry with him. And the God of the universe just said, no, I'm going to use it for my glory because the encounter with Christ is always deeply personal. But it's not just personal. It's also radically unexpected, right? I mean, think about what Jesus does. He stops after he addresses the disciples and says, listen, my deep heart of mission is that as long as we are here, we are going to be doing the work of God. And while I am on this earth, I am the light of the world. This is why I am here, to shine light into the darkness. And this man counts in that picture. It's not just this giant cosmic redemptive plan in which I die and everybody just gets grafted under umbrella. It's an entirely personal movement. And this man who is a blind, marginalized beggar is an intricate part of that plan. And Jesus stops in this incredibly unexpected way, right, with the disciples all watching. And he sits. I like to think he sits, most likely stoops, whatever. He gets down on this guy's level. And what does Jesus do? He spits on the ground. Of all the ways that this guy could be healed, right? Snap of a finger. Chapter 2 in John, he changes entire vats of water into wine with a word. We see Jesus calm entire storms with his breath. We see him heal people that aren't even in the same city. This is God. There are an infinite number of ways he could have healed this blind man, right? Infinite number of ways. But he spits on the ground and he rubs the dirt with his fingers and he makes mud the spit of God and he wipes it across this guy's eyes now my opinion and just for what it's worth doesn't say this in scripture my opinion is that Jesus gets down with this guy in this incredibly personal way right and the guy can't see so what does Jesus do he does something audible and tangible guy's sense of hearing would have been incredible, right? And so he spits. It's audible. He draws this saliva and he audibly spits on the ground. And right there, the guy could hear this unfolding because he can't see it. And then Jesus mixes it and he takes his physical hand and he touches, right? There is this connection that is being made that is so radically unexpected with the way that God works in our life that is undeniable, Of all the ways that the God of the universe, the great I am, right? Of all the ways that the logos of God could heal someone, he chooses this incredible thing. And it's not gross. Like, it's beautiful that the God that breathed life into this man's lungs The very God that this man thought hated him for all of those years, right? That he would take his own saliva and put it on my sinful, broken body because the connection between sin and the handicap was real. What that meant is that it meant that the Jewish people believed that this person was sinful because he was blind. Therefore, he couldn't have contact with people because he was a sinner. And God was punishing him. And therefore, if he was contacted by another person, they would become unclean too. So this blind, sinful beggar just had the spit of God wiped across his eyes by the fingers of God. You want to talk about unexpected. The disciples had seen a whole lot of things, right? They had seen Jesus do some pretty amazing miracles. They've seen 5,000 people fed with bread and fish with a single prayer. 
And that Jesus, in this incredibly personal, deeply personal, radically unexpected way, kneels down with this guy and he spits on the ground and he touches his eyes. But what makes this even more incredible is sort of the profound healing that happens. Now think about this. Here's this guy who the source of all of his pain and all of his struggle and his entire definition as a human is in his blindness. Now, unfortunately, that's the way things happened thousands of years ago, right? Now today, if we have a vision-impaired culture, we wouldn't see that necessarily as a handicap. We wouldn't define someone by whatever those things are. But in those days, you were defined by that because it was a belief that you were broken, And so for your entire life, you've been defined by your brokenness. You've been relegated to the streets or to the city gates to sit on a straw mat or on a blanket and beg and say, I can't do anything. Have mercy on me day in and day out. And if people had pity on you, they would toss you a coin. And if they didn't, they'd just curse at you. That was his life. Why? Because if God hates you, right, I don't need to pay attention to you myself. And so what does Jesus do? The very source of this man's pain and definition and hurt and labels was his vision. And the God of the universe takes his fingers with his own spit and he touches that guy's eyes. Jesus doesn't have to touch his eyes. He could sneeze and the guy could see, right? But he does. What is he telling that man? He's telling you essentially, telling him essentially that what the world And what you have thought was your greatest pain is actually going to be the source of my greatest glory. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. And I literally will touch the very place where you are broken. And he physically touches his eyes, the place where he had been marginalized and labeled an outcast, the place that he believed was his source of biggest disappointment. God is punishing me here. And he touches them. And he heals him. And it's profoundly healing, not because he just can see, right? Obviously, there's more than just a healing of the eyes here. He's profoundly touching him to change his entire character. He goes back home, and the people say, is this you? Like, this looks like you, but it can't be because you can see his entire identity is now changed because Jesus touched and changed the source of all of his pain, all of his struggle, all of his label. And Jesus turned it into his own glory. And for the next two weeks, we're going to see the leaders come attack Jesus because of what he did in the life of this man. Because an encounter with Christ not only changes us, but it changes the people around us. It's profoundly healing. And as I thought about this encounter, what I thought through multiple times was, there's a lot of truth here. But one of the most incredible statements that we see, or truth statements that we see in this, is that the areas of our life that are seen as or collected as failures, struggles, pains, the areas of our life that we see as mistakes, brokenness, are oftentimes the areas where God is going to reveal and redeem his greatest moments of glory, right? Those areas that seem untouchable, that seem really broken, the areas that we've made massive mistakes are not outside the incredible redemptive reach of God. And he often shows up in incredibly unexpected ways, and it's incredibly personal, and it's not always easy, but it's always redeemable. That means that there is nothing in your life that is not redeemable by the mighty and beautiful hand of God. 
no matter what it is. Whether it's an ailment you thought was actually a, a, a mistake or a curse that God is going to turn into a blessing, or whether it's something that you did that you haven't uttered to a single other human, nothing is beyond the redemptive hand of God. An encounter with Jesus is personal, right? Encounter with Jesus is always radical and it's always healing. But the truth is, is that even in the middle of it, it comes into places that we're afraid of or we hurt in, we don't know how to let go of the most. Those are the places where God shows up in our life and he says, let me show the world who I really am. What Jesus did in the life of that blind man was not just give him sight. He healed him from every category the world had thrown at him. And then he turned the world upside down because he did something that only God could do. This miracle is going to lead us into a much big conversation about the nature of God. But in this very moment, in this context, I want you to see it. Because this is the God that wants your life. This is the God that is in deep love pursuit of you. This is the God that says, I want you to surrender everything in your life to me. Completely and totally. All those areas that you're afraid of, the areas you don't want to cut loose of, the areas that I know about that nobody else knows about, lay them down. Let me touch them, heal them, and use them for my glory. Because there is nothing beyond my redemptive hand. And I don't think you know how many times in my life I've needed to believe this and struggled to. That those mistakes, those fears, those anxieties, those failures are not just things that God can heal and redeem, right? But they can be areas of God's greatest glory in my life. That when we lay our lives down, God is glorified. See, the nature of an encounter with Christ is personal. It's unexpected and it's healing. It's the very nature of who he is. It's not just the nature of this encounter. It's the nature of Christ. And yet most of us would rather choose to sit on the side of the road holding on to our fears and to let the God of the universe come and use his own spit to change our lives. I don't know where you are, what you're wrestling with, or what you're struggling with, but I can promise you that something in your life and your heart, much like mine, fears exposure. Something in your life is tangled in disappointment. Something in your life is tangled in anxiety and worry and hurt. And the beautiful truth of this miracle is that the God of the universe will do the unexpected and show up in unexpected ways and take your greatest struggle, hurt, pain, issue, fear, whatever it is, and turn it into his glory. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you can do this. Take my entire life. This morning as we close our time in worship, my heartbeat is that there are things that we could surrender to the Lord. We would just do it. That we would just stop. God, I'm, I confess that I have failed here. I've confessed that I've believed the lies of the world. I've confessed that I've exchanged my trust for you with my trust in the world, my trust in myself. I confess, God, that I have done this thing or made this mistake or I continue to go back there. Or, God, I confess that every time you tell me truth, I exchange it for a lie. That, God, oftentimes I feel like the blind guy that sits on the side of the road and just wonders if you're mad at me. That I've bought into a theology that is broken. And that has to do with my behavior and not your grace. That I can do nothing to merit or to earn it, but that, God, you are just that good. So we close our time in prayer and we start to worship. I pray that you would cut loose of those things.
and let the God of the universe take over your heart, all right, that Jesus would step in and redeem the broken and that we would fall in love with a God that changes lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we gather here for the opportunity to bring our broken hearts and our ailments and our sins and our struggles before you. We're not all that unlike this blind beggar. We're desperate in desperate need of you. We have things in our life, God, that we have done or that we have been labeled with or that we are carrying that have defined us. And the truth is, God, I believe that you not only can use those for your glory, but God, you can heal us in the middle of them. That you can take the source of our greatest disappointment and use it for your greatest glory. That you can take what the world has said is our biggest mistake and you can use it to glorify yourself. That you can take our biggest fear and anxiety and turn it into a beautiful moment of trust. That, God, you desire for us to surrender our lives and our hearts to you, King Eternal. And so, Lord, as we lay our lives out before you and we worship this morning, I pray that you would be glorified. That every move you make, God, would be a move of your glory. And that the world would see that you are a God who takes even the broken and heals their hurts. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Amen.